But for right now, uh, we're going to study God's Word. And so, if you have a Bible, I'd like to, to encourage you to take it out with me at this time. And um, I do, I do want to briefly address what we have all been through. As, as a country this past week, uh, specifically the violence that has taken place in our capital. But God's word is actually going to take us there, and it's going to touch on it as we go through the message. So, so join me in opening up your Bibles again, Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. And let's, let's ask God to speak to us this morning. Lord Jesus, I want to thank and praise you that you are present with us. God, I want to echo the prayer that, that Sarah prayed just a minute ago, that your Holy Spirit is gentle with us, that you are forming us and drawing us into your will. And we pray that you would do that good work in us now as we open up your word, that it might change us from within, that we might be more like you, challenged to bring greater glory to your name when we leave than when we came. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, again, we're in Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. We're going to go all the way through 20, verse 29. It's a little longer than usual, and so instead of reading it at the beginning, we're just going to kind of climb through it together as we go. I'm also a little apprehensive about my sermon going too long because somebody posted this on my Facebook wall a couple days ago. It says, you were preaching a 45-minute sermon in a 25-minute zone, Pastor. I'm going to have to see your license and ordination. And I'm already on probation, so I don't want to be suspended. So anyway, this, today is the, the first Sunday in our new sermon series. We're, we're calling this series Hitting a Wall. And in part, it's based on a concept that we learned a few years ago from a book that I facilitated a class on here at St. John's called um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's written by a pastor from New York City. His name is Peter Scazzaro. And in the book, he, he kind of kind of lays out the premise that, that every part of our lives, our body, our mind, our spirit, our background, all of it has a real impact on our journey of faith. That, that we can't separate ourselves into church self and work self and political self and family self and our background and all of those things. Everything is connected. And so Scazzaro kind of takes you through a journey through scripture to show us that this is a very biblical concept. And he also uses some of the forefathers and mothers of our faith and breaks down kind of the, the basic stages, the predictable walk that we walk as we get deeper in our relationship with God. And he expresses that if you want to get past the infancy stage, that if you want to get to greater maturity and depth with God, which we all want, I hope, because we're here, right? Then we're all going to come up against walls in our lives. Uh, you'll come up against walls whether you're walking with God God or not, but, but as you walk with God, what God desires to do in those walls is, is to teach us something, to draw us closer to him, even if the walls are things that he didn't cause, things that are terribly painful. And we're talking about very significant things, not things that are more or less insignificant, like a wall is not tr a traffic jam on your way to work. Uh, in, on Monday morning. That's, that's not a wall. A wall isn't even your favorite Chicago football team not winning a Super Bowl since the year before you were born. And though it feels that way sometimes. Anyway, I'm a Bear fan, if you didn't know that. 
A wall is a lot more significant than the annoyances in our lives. It's, it, it can mean something different for everybody. It could be a job loss. It could be a, a, a making a big mistake that causes consequences in your life and the lives of others. It could be a divorce. It could be a health diagnosis. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be a drought in your faith where you just, you just don't hear the voice of God. You doubt. You have questions. It could be a depression that you go through. A wall can, can be any of those things. It can come as a result of something you've done, but it can also come as a result of nothing you've done, consequences that are totally beyond your control. And so as I express the definition of what a wall is, my guess is that all of us already have a wall or two in our lives that comes to mind, right? Like we can all think of a few walls, and this is not new. This isn't a new concept, but, but here's why it's important in the context of our faith. Scazzaro says this. He says, without an understanding of the wall in the journey of faith, however, countless sincere followers of Jesus, what they end up doing is stagnating at the wall, and they don't move forward with God's purposes in their lives. Sometimes it's because we hide behind our faith. We think that our faith is going to flee us from the pain in our lives, when in reality, we need to trust God to transform us through it. Simply put, there's really only two options for the Christian when you come up against a wall in your faith. The first option is that you can bounce off of it. And what ends up happening when you bounce is you end up coming back. The other option is that you can go through it in faith. And this, this whole concept excited me a couple of years ago because it was so formative for me to understand this in my own faith journey, and I know it was for many of you as well, because I think we had over 70 people that ended up signing up for the two sessions, even people from different churches. What I didn't anticipate when we covered this two years ago was that our entire world would come up against one big wall at the same time. And maybe not one big wall, but maybe a big wall with lots of smaller walls within it. A pandemic and racism and political turmoil and violent outbreaks and moments of deep uncertainty. And I'm just talking about last week. And so how do we move through it? I mean, that's really the question we're asking throughout this series is how do we move through it? Because what I'm seeing right now is so many people, especially Christians, that are just bouncing off the walls. And, and I don't want that. I don't want that for myself, and I don't want that for you. And so that's, that's what this series is all about. And we begin it in the Gospel of Mark. As I said before, this, this reading is a little bit long, um, but you may be familiar with the story. It's, it's about a father who brings his son to Jesus to be healed. And it's long, but the, the, the story goes quickly, you'll notice. And, and the details are significant that come before it. So I want to go back to chapter 8 of Mark. And that's why it's important for you to have your Bible open so that you can see what it is that we're running through together. And you'll see that the details that happened before the story actually inform what the story means to us today. And so if you look at the end of Mark chapter 8, you'll see there's, there's kind of an identity crisis that's happening among the disciples, and in particular among Peter. In verses 27 through 30, Jesus asks the disciples who people are saying he is. And, and, and he answers that question, uh, or they, they answer the question in a variety of ways, but Peter answers the question by saying, you are the Messiah. And that's true. 
That is exactly who Jesus is. This, is. this is the right answer. It's a good moment for Peter. But if you keep reading immediately after, look at verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man, you know, the one that Peter just called the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, in the terms of the sermon series that we're in the middle of right now, this is Jesus' wall. This is the wall that he came to earth to break through. He has to go through it. And then Peter, who literally just called Jesus the Messiah, is now rebuking him. Now, if that doesn't make you uncomfortable, think about it for a minute. The disciple of Jesus is rebuking God, right? Like, whoa, it's, it's like a moment where you're sitting in the room and watching this and the tension is so thick, you could cut through it with a knife. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 33. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Peter rebuked Jesus. Now Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Called him Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus turned and he looked at the disciples and then he rebuked Peter. Why is that detail important? Well, because all of the disciples were watching. They all heard it. And, and so he needed to make it abundantly clear to all of them that Peter is wrong. He's wrong. What Jesus told them, what he just plainly explained to them as Mark describes it, he has to do. It's suffer, die, and rise. That's the way through the wall. That's the only way through the wall. And then he explains to them that if you want to follow me through your walls, you're going to have to do the same thing as I. Look at verse 34. He called the crowd to him. And along with his disciples, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, like, just, just think about this for a second, right? Peter doesn't want Jesus to go and do this. And then Jesus says, all of you are going to do this. Whoever wants to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? See, what Peter wanted a Messiah for at this point, and we all are guilty of this, so don't be too hard on Peter, is he wanted a Messiah to give him the world. And the truth was he was willing to give up his soul to receive it. And Jesus loves Peter too much to let him stay in that state of mind. And so he basically says to him and to everybody who's listening, it's a fool's bet. If you live that way, you will ultimately be left with nothing because we're all going to die. And I didn't come to give you the world because the world is already mine and you're going to learn soon enough that in me it's all yours too anyway. But what Jesus is saying is I came to save your soul. I came to save your soul. That's what we need from Jesus, is to save our souls. And so after this, Jesus takes Peter. Look at your Bible, verse uh, chapter, chapter 8. Um, he takes Jesus, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, three of the disciples, up to a mountain. 
and they see him transfigured. We're not going to spend tons of time on this because this comes up in about a month, month and a half in the church calendar, but it's, it's an incredible story. If you've never heard it before, he, he radiates the presence of God, and then their forefathers of the faith, Moses and Elijah, they're there too. It's spectacular. And again, Peter speaks before he thinks. Look at this, verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It's good for us to be here. Let us pick up three shelters. Let's put them up. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Don't you love the way Mark describes it? That Peter didn't know what to say, but he said something anyway. (laughs) And so you you know that, that, that he's not quite on the right track yet, right? Because God himself interrupts Peter. Look at this, verse Seven, a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from the cloud said about Jesus, this is my son who I love. Listen to him. Peter isn't listening yet. Listen to him. And suddenly they looked around, and there was no longer anyone with them except Jesus. And if you keep reading, you'll see that Jesus, again, as they journey down the mountain, points them back to the truth he just said before, that the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, will die, and we know then will rise again. Why? Because that is the only way through the wall. They still don't get it. They still don't get it, which is why we're reading the passage we're reading today. Look at Mark 9, 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. Now let me just point out one thing here. The very presence of Jesus as he walks into this large, religiously charged, arguing crowd, was enough to overwhelm them with wonder. And so when we think about what we've witnessed this past week in our own nation's capital, just think about the crowd on Wednesday. And think about all the signs that proclaimed the name of Jesus in the midst of what was going on. All of this religiously charged tension and fighting. And imagine what it might have been like if Jesus stepped into that situation. Just imagine what that would have been like. But, but I'm getting, hold that thought because I'm getting ahead of myself. So, so let's get back to, to verse 16. Jesus walks into the crowd and he says, what are you arguing about? What are you arguing with them about? Verse 17, a man in the crowd answered. He said, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit who has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. This father brought his son to the disciples, to the people who bear the name of God. There's religious teachers there, and specifically the people who bear the name of Jesus. He brought his son to them, hoping they could bring him hope and peace and healing, but they couldn't. And beyond that, as a matter of fact, not only are they not able to bring them what they're asking for, but their very presence as the people who are carrying the name of God is bringing the opposite. Everybody's fighting. They're all arguing. 
And Jesus is irritated. If I wasn't in church, I'd use a stronger word. Look at this, verse 19. He says, you unbelieving generation. How long should I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And friends, if if you're looking for a word from God in the moment that we're living in right now, I think that word can be found right here in verse 19. Not only the challenge that says you unbelieving generation, I think there's very much truth in that, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, but also the invitation, bring the boy to me. I mean, just think about this, right? Jesus walks into the crowd, everybody's talking, everybody's fighting, and nobody yet has thought to bring the boy to Jesus. Can we bring our wounds to Jesus? Can we bring our brokenness to Jesus? Look at verse 20. So they brought the boy to Jesus. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. And he fell to the ground and he rolled around, foaming at the mouth. This this disease, this possession is horrid. I mean, terrible. Like, can you even imagine? It is killing this boy. It's killing this boy. Look at verse 21. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the the boy's father answered. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. And I sat on that verse for, for a while this week because I just thought, my goodness, this father, his entire son's life has watched his son almost die. Like, can you imagine as a parent how exhausted he must be? I mean, the closest thing I can think of maybe in this particular moment is the fact that I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old that every time I look away, he finds a light socket or something, right? you got to just constantly be chasing him around. Maybe you can experience that, but I don't think that's quite the stretch of what's happening here. Maybe, Maybe if you're a parent of a child with special needs, you understand. A child who who has 24-7 care that's required of them. I think if that's you, you get it. You understand the plight of this father. If you're a foster parent who's taking children in out of danger and every day you don't know if they're going to be placed back into it, I think maybe you understand in a different way. And the truth is, I think all of us who are parents and grandparents, we probably get it on some level as we look at the world that we're raising children in today and we wonder if the evil that is possessing our world right now is going to be at the point that it's going to throw our children into the fire in the future. This poor father hasn't slept in years. He can't take his eyes off of his son. It's devastating. Verse 22, he says to Jesus, this is the father talking, But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. The father says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything, Jesus. If. He's not sure. He's not sure. And and I look at this and I go, man, I don't think I could blame him. I mean, after all, look at what he did. He brought his boy to Jesus' followers, and now they're all just fighting. (laughs) They're all just arguing. I told you at the beginning that we'd come back to this. And so now's the time that I think God speaks through his word. What happened in our nation's capital this past week, and everything that precipitated it, this is not a new problem. 
was tragic. It was tragic. And, and, and I, I hope we can all agree on that. I hope that by saying that, that that's not controversial, even though I know for some it might be. It was terrible. But as a pastor, and maybe not even as a pastor, but as a, as a Christian and as a, a Christian father who's trying to raise the next generation to follow Jesus, what, what I found to be more tragic than anything was the number of images of people who were there doing what they were doing in the name of God. In the name of Jesus, fighting, killing, holding up their own rights. And I think it's just like the crowd that was gathered in in front of this possessed boy, right? Arguing and fighting in the name of God and accomplishing nothing to bring the healing that they desperately needed. We saw the same thing in front of us this past week. And that is not to ignore that there are real divisions and issues in our midst. And I know we're still trying to figure out how to get through all that. And we can't get through all that on a single Sunday and through a single passage. But we can say with certainty that the way in which the people who called and claimed the name of God were looking for hope is not the way of God. It was not the way of Jesus, not when your hope is in him. And I know that the rebuttal immediately from some is, but Tom, sometimes even Christians have to fight. You're not wrong. If you say that, you're not wrong. But if you dare attach the name of Jesus to your battle cry, there's only one way to fight. And it is not carrying his name on a flag. It is carrying a cross. And it's carrying your cross. And so if you're not willing to do that, please drop the name of Jesus from whatever it is you are doing. Because the Son of Man made it clear. He said it plainly that he must suffer and die and rise again. And if you follow him, it's the only way. It's the only way through the wall, whatever the wall is that we face. And friends, the reason that I'm so passionate about this is not because I'm angry. There's anger in there for sure. But what's really the passion behind what I'm saying right now is that it works. This is the pattern by which people who follow Jesus survive indescribable grief and live to tell the story. It's how the faithful followers of Jesus for generations have clung to Jesus through war and plagues and injustices in the same way they've clung to Jesus in divorce and addiction. It's how you lose your job and you come out closer to God on the other side. It's how you find hope in the most hopeless of circumstances. It's the way God brings healing And it's the way we get through the walls in our life. It's not ignoring the walls, but it's allowing God to carry us through them in the same way that the Father carried the Son through the cross and out the other side to eternal life. And as I was preparing my message this week, I I, I got to this part and I thought, you know, I've been some of your pastors for almost 10 years now, and I know that there's a lot of you that get this. You get it. You know exactly what it is that I'm describing because you've lived it. I've watched you do it. You've taught me how to do this. 
But the reason that we still need to preach it over and over again is because there's a lot of people that look like Peter out in the world right now. And they don't yet get it. And they're claiming the name of Jesus and then living a way that is not his way. And so we have to call that out. We have to call that out and say it in front of all the disciples, just like Jesus said it in front of all the disciples when he rebuked Peter, and especially in front of the next generation of people who are wondering if they should even become disciples of Jesus so that everybody knows that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And if that sounds too abstract to you and you're wondering how do I live that out in the moment that we're living in right now, thankfully, let's ask the Apostle Paul. He answers the question. Romans 12, he says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head, just like the crowd dropped their argument and started to come to Jesus and wonder. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Back to the father and the boy. He says to Jesus, right? He says, if, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. And I love the way Jesus responds. Look at this, Mark 9, 23. He says, if you can, if you can, Everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And that right there, friends, is the gospel. That right there is the death that leads to life. I believe and I'm also struggling to believe. That's death right there. That's letting go of control. That's letting go of pride. And I can't think of a more honest prayer to pray when you're up against the wall. As I walk through life with many of you, when we come up against the wall together, that's always our prayer. I want Jesus and there's a part of me that needs help to believe that he can. And the way the story ends is the hope that if there's one prayer that Jesus will always answer for you, this is it. Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of the boy and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and it came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. If you've been fighting the walls in your life, your whole life, and bouncing off of them and trying to get through them on your own might, and you surrender yourself to God the way that the Father has surrendered his Son to Jesus, the truth is you might look like a dead corpse as well. People might look at you and say, say why aren't you fighting anymore? 
Why aren't you fighting anymore? But what we learn is that that is exactly where Jesus can begin to heal. Look at verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus went indoors, the disciples asked him privately. They said, Jesus, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we drive out the demon? Why couldn't we bring healing? Why couldn't we solve his problems? And Jesus replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. They didn't pray. That's why the demon didn't come out. They didn't pray. The disciples of Jesus Christ didn't pray. But that's where I need to work on something too. Because this Wednesday when I found out what was going on in our nation, my, uh, my inclination was not to pray either. You know what I did? I turned on the news and I called my wife. Prayer was not my first instinct. And a lot of times when I come up against a wall, it is not my first instinct either. And that might sound absurd. It might sound absurd to you that the disciples of Jesus himself didn't think to pray when a boy who needed healing was brought to them. And it might sound absurd that your pastor doesn't always think to pray when he comes up against the walls in life as well. But you know what? It's kind of absurd that you don't either. That we all have access through Jesus, to a direct connection to the Father in heaven, and yet we are all guilty of still thinking that we need to solve the problems of our life by our own strength. I mean, don't you see that that's the problem in the world right now? And the problem and the rhetoric that we have so blindly been following for too long, which is why we have to pray and put down our sword, and take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Because Jesus is saying the same thing to you and me. The problems in this world are the kind that can only be driven out through prayer. And so let's join together right now, and let's pray. Lord God, there is so much to pray for. So many things, too many things. But I think for today that maybe we might well be summarizing our prayer in the same prayer that the Father prayed to you in person when he came before you and he said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Every time we come up against a wall, in our lives, and we don't allow you to carry us through it. Every time we take matters into our own hands, every time we think that the only way to justice is to rise up with evil, we are doing the same thing. Those are moments of unbelief. And so may we repent of that as we come before you this morning, God. May we repent of that in our own hearts and may we renounce the examples that we have seen just this past week, especially in those who are bearing your name. Like you rebuked Peter when you said, get behind me, Satan. We rebuke those who do evil in your name. This is not your way. 
We know that the beginning of your way is hope through repentance. Being a people that are willing to admit that we need to change collectively and individually. And so God, I, I pray in the words of King David in Psalm 139, he came before you and he passionately asked you to take care of the evil and the enemies that they were up against the walls in their lives. But then he ended his prayer by saying this, Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my anxious heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. May it be said of us as well that we might go into the world and love people the way you loved us, especially our enemies, that our example might be so radical that it would be like heaping coals on their heads and they would see your presence in us with wonder. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.